Good morning. Our scripture reading today is found on page six of your bulletins. It's from the book of Numbers, chapter 12, verses 1 through 15. Miriam and Aaron began to talk against Moses because of his Cushite wife, for he had married a Cushite. Has the Lord spoken only through Moses, they asked? Hasn't he also spoken through us? And the Lord heard this. Now Moses was a very humble man, more humble than anyone else on the face of the earth. At once the Lord said to Moses, Aaron, and Miriam, Come out to the tent of meeting, all three of you. So the three of them went out. Then the Lord came down in a pillar of cloud. He stood at the entrance to the tent and summoned Aaron and Miriam. When the two of them stepped forward, he said, Listen to my words. When there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, reveal myself to them in visions. I speak to them in dreams. But this is not true of my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. When I speak face to face clearly, with him I speak face to face clearly and not in riddles. He sees the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? The anger of the Lord burned against them, and he left them. When the cloud lifted from above the tent, Miriam's skin was leprous. It became white as snow. Aaron turned toward her and saw that she had a defiling skin disease. And he said to Moses, Please, my Lord, I ask you not to hold against us the sin that we have so foolishly committed. Do not let her be like a stillborn infant coming from its mother's womb with all its flesh half eaten away. So Moses cried out to the Lord, Please, God, heal her. The Lord replied to Moses, If her father had spit in her face, would she not have been in disgrace for seven days? Confine her outside the camp for seven days. After that, she can be brought back. So Miriam was confined outside the camp for seven days, and the people did not move on till she was brought back. The word of the Lord. We will, after this, have a, a brief time of question and answer Q&A, so feel free to jot those down or uh, keep them in your mind, and we can talk. It's a great way for us to continue to learn, but let me first say a word of prayer before we look at this passage. God, we pray that you would send your spirit, your power, and that you would use your word to open our hearts to more of you, to help us to see Jesus, and to put a mirror in front of our faces that we would see ourselves truly and accurately, uh, that you would give us grace for repentance, for faith, for love, for joy, for healing, for everything we need and everything you provide in your Son. We look forward to what you're going to do. In Jesus' name, amen. We've been, over the past couple of weeks, looking at the vision, the mission of our church, Grace Meridian Hill, 
And today we're focusing on one part, and that is our commitment to be in a cross-cultural community. We aspire, we pray, we are laboring to be, to become a cross-cultural community, which means that we're committed to gathering together an ethnically and a culturally mixed group of people who are, in, who are forming intentional relationships, caring relationships, reciprocal, I need you and you need me relationships, relationships of mutuality, of respect, all of which entails, of course, having and cultivating wonderfully messy relationships as we learn to talk about our racial wounds and experiences with honesty and repentance and forgiveness. And so, of course, that means here and today, whether if you are Latino or white or African-American or Native American, Asian or African or biracial or triracial, we are glad that you're here, and we want you to be here. That whether you're Venezuelan or Russian or Pennsylvanian, eight generations deep, or Chinese-American or Kenyan, and whether or not you even know what you are in your ethnic makeup, that we want you to come to this community and to have the freedom in the gospel of grace to be yourself. A place where you can feel like you belong. That together we might learn how to embrace ourselves, which requires grace from God too, and embrace one another as God has embraced us through Jesus Christ. This is an endeavor and a vision which includes grappling with things like racism and racial brokenness. Enter today's passage. Here we have in front of us a story that confronts us with the realities of racial brokenness there in the covenant community here in the church. Where the older brother and the older sister of Moses, the great leader of Israel, they were challenging his leadership. Why? Well, in part because they felt like he hadn't married the right kind of woman. We're told in verse 1, Miriam and Aaron began to talk against Moses because of his Cushite wife, for he had married a Cushite. Well, what's a Cushite? According to scholars, a Cushite was someone from the region south of Egypt along the Nile River uh, near modern-day Ethiopia and Sudan, uh, where the people were well-known in the ancient world for their dark 
skin. And so, of course, it may have been that her complexion was not to their liking. Certainly, it also involved her foreignness. But in other words, Miriam and Aaron took issue with Moses' marriage to a black African woman. Did you know that the Bible confronts such issues and matters with such directness? Someone says, well, hold on, hold on. Weren't Miriam and Aaron, well, maybe right? I mean, didn't the Old Testament law prohibit the Israelites from marrying non-Israelites? Well, the answer to that is yes, in places like Exodus 34 and Deuteronomy 7. God does say don't marry the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, uh, different people in the immediate region existing in what was later to become the promised land. But keep in mind that he's speaking into an ancient context there in which ethnicity and religion were very closely linked. And so that if you were a Canaanite, you most certainly worshipped Canaanite gods. And so with these warnings and even with these restrictions, God was really saying to the Israelites, look, marriage makes you one, intimately so, powerfully so. So if you marry a Canaanite, dear children, pretty soon you will turn from me. You risk starting to worship Canaanite God. In other words, his expressed concern was with interfaith marriages, not interracial marriages. More than that, God has always shown his passion to gather for himself. We see this cover to cover throughout the Bible, his passion to gather for himself a people from every tribe, every language group, every nation, every ethnicity. To bring them in together by the power of the grace of God as a healed humanity as God intended us to be. But here today, Miriam and Aaron will have none of that. Moses' wife, she's a Cushite. She's not right. It's not clear exactly what they didn't like about her. Not clear exactly what it was. It is clear, however, that their desire was to exclude her. Our vision for building a cross-cultural community most certainly involves much more than talking about racism. But let's be clear, there will be no authentic cross-cultural community without addressing racism and racial exclusion. So can we do that together for a few minutes and beyond these few minutes throughout the life of our community as we grow in this way? First, by looking at this fascinating story. Three Quick points. First, the dynamics of racism. Secondly, the problem with racism. And thirdly, the healing of racism. First, the dynamics of racism. It is deeper than we typically think. You might have noticed that there were actually two complaints that Miriam and Aaron brought against Moses. The first, as we've already seen, were about his marriage with a Cushite. The second is this, we see it in verse 2, has the Lord spoken only through Moses, they asked. Hasn't he also spoken through us? 
hey, is Moses the only prophet around here? Is he the only one that's going to get credit, that's going to get office, that's going to get status? What are we? Chopped liver, you see? And this is more than just sibling rivalry. Miriam and Aaron were struggling with what you might call power envy. They wanted Moses' status. They wanted his influence, his importance. And here's the insight this gives us. Racism doesn't start with, hey, I see you, I don't like you. That's just the, the surface manifestation of a deeper commitment of the heart. Racism doesn't start with, I think you're unimportant. It starts with, I think I'm important. To promote me, I must demote you. If I'm trying to move up, I'm going to drag you down. If I'm consumed with being an insider, if that's what gives me status and significance and a puffed up ego, then I must see and treat you as an outsider. When we look down on someone because of their race or culture, it's usually because we lust after status and significance and we're actually deep within, deeply insecure. It's worth a look within, isn't it? But racism is not only deeper than we think, it's also wider than we think. Understand this issue with Moses' wife is, it's not simply a debate between three siblings. Remember, Moses here is the unique mediator, the go-between between the God of the universe and the people of God, the mediator of God's covenant. Aaron is the high priest of Israel, and Miriam is not only a prophetess, but we see her function as one of the chief worship leaders in the community of faith. So here we have, among these three, tons of power, tons of authority, the power to interpret God's laws, the authority to enforce God's standards. And so what's at stake here in this moment? Not just one man's marriage, but Israelite society as a whole. That Miriam's goal is not simply the exclusion of Cushites from her nuclear family. Her goal is the exclusion of Cushites from the covenant community, the people of God. In other words, this passage reminds us importantly that racism is institutional and not just individual. Yes, racism is personal. It is internal. It infects my beliefs and attitudes and assumptions about people who are different from me as I seek to exclude them, first and foremost, in my heart. It shapes my biases, my blind spots, as well as the way I act upon these internal feelings, acting upon them through my behavior. But racism also has systemic and institutional 
dimension. Do you say, what does that mean? Well, it's where racial bias and exclusion gets built into policies and practices of government agencies, yes, of schools, who gets in and who makes it to the top, of financial systems, who has access to money, who has the power to use it and distribute it, or businesses, how people are hired, who can flourish in it, who has positions of leadership, or even of churches, who gets to feel like they truly belong. Who gets to serve? Who gets to really feel at home? Who gets to lead? The individual and the institutional, the personal and the systemic, they're interrelated. And so, friends, if we're going to address racism, whether in the church or in society, effectively, we have to tackle it at both levels. But here's the thing, we typically don't. Here's the thing, when talking about racism, uh, whether in the church or in society at large, we generally tend to focus solely on the beliefs and the behavior of individuals rather than systems. It's easier to focus on, it's easier to spot, to identify. American Christians are especially susceptible to this because of our overwhelming emphasis on a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. We tend to be even more individualistic, statistics show, than the average American, and therefore tend to be more blind to the systemic and institutionalized forms of racism all around us. Which, to give you one example, is why so many Christians, let alone the wider population of Americans, had such a hard time understanding what was going on in Ferguson, Missouri, over the past several weeks. Where a police officer shot and killed an unarmed young man, 18-year-old Michael Brown where the protests that followed were not just about the actions of individuals and not just because of some implication that an individual officer was or wasn't a rabid racist himself. If you listen closely to the protests and the cries of the heart of that community, was it not whether or not Officer Wilson or law enforcement officers like him would be held accountable by the justice system that too often have been and continues to be a system that leaves them short of justice? It was and is about the long history of racial injustices, especially against young black men that continues to be relived and all too often denied. You see, you start to understand and allow even this passage to open your eyes to the reality of what's called systemic racism 
And it starts to teach you and to understand that whether or not the officer who shot Michael Brown had a personal animosity towards Mike Brown is not the only thing that matters. That there are a lot of larger institutional forces and mechanisms that have left many feeling and not limited to the black community that black life all too often in our society is degraded and denied. What if laws allow me to take your life in the name of self-defense as long as I'm acting out of fear of imminent danger, fear for my own life, but what if my fear itself is far too easily and inevitably shaped by racial biases, social perceptions, or my personal view of black men? See, systemic understandings of racism helps us to start to address questions like this. And here's the bottom line for us as a church. If racism is more than just individual, if it is, in fact, systemic, institutional, then there's more work to be done as a Christian than simply making sure that you don't say racial slurs or crack racial jokes. That there's much more for Christians to do than simply getting along with the people immediately around there, although we need to start there. There's also the proactive work of justice. Of establishing starting here in the church community and extending beyond here into society. A place where people's dignity is honored, where people's lives are treasured, where standards and practices and habits and institutions, if you will, are truly cross-cultural and truly one where all are embraced in Jesus' name. The dynamics of racism. Secondly, and quickly, the problem with racism. The story continues here. Aaron, Miriam, Moses, with incredible suspense. The Lord calls them to him. Verse 4, come out to the tent of meeting, all three of you. Uh-oh. We're in trouble. Tent of meeting, of course, was the personal meeting place between God and Moses, sort of like his own private phone booth, where God spoke to Moses, we're told, like a friend speaks face to face to another friend. God comes down in a pillar of cloud, verse 4, which is his chosen way of visibly manifesting that he really is right before you. He stands at the entrance to the tent, and you can almost hear a court clerk shout out, All rise. Aaron and Miriam are summoned before God. The two of them step forward. God speaks very clearly, underscoring Moses' authority. And then we see in verse 10, When the cloud lifted from above the tent, Miriam's skin was leprous. It became as white as snow. Aaron turned toward her and saw that she had a defiling skin disease. 
God here was not only punishing, he was also teaching, telling about what racism does. What's the problem? Yes, racism violates the other person, and we tend to focus on that, and we need to remember that. But this passage actually focuses on two other problems with racism. That racism violates not just the other person, it violates God. It's why we can call racism sin against God. Why would God take it so personally? It's because he has made every single person, as we're told in the Bible, in his image. As a true, if partial, reflection of his beauty and majesty and glory. That in the unique way in which you see another human being, with all their cultural and ethnic and racial dimensions right before your eyes and experience right in your relationship with them, that God says with the full force of his own personhood behind it, that that you're experiencing and seeing is a little piece of me. Therefore, in racism, his created beauty, his investment in humanity is being called ugly. And he says, look out, look out. That's my glory that you're trying to exclude, dear Miriam. It's no wonder we're told in verse 9 that the anger of the Lord burned against Miriam and Aaron. Because he has a passion a burning passion against racism and for his own glory. Look, racism's problem isn't just sociological, it's also theological. But racism violates not only God, it also violates you. If you're the perpetrator. We see this in the picture of the leprosy, this defiling skin disease that is given to Miriam as an object lesson that she might see even in her own skin the problems of her own heart. She's given what's called a defiling skin disease that just in the same way as it is eating up her skin, that we might see that racism eats up your own soul. That it's a spiritual leprosy of the soul, an inner spiritual defilement. It's this terrible disease, of course, in which your flesh basically rots. And God says, look, the problem just isn't in the way that you injure other people. Your own soul the way in which you were meant to be a worshiper before God, you are rotting on the inside. You see here in verse 12 this image, this description of the, the flesh of a, a stillborn infant, which is just so terribly graphic. I just sat on that verse earlier this week and said, Lord, it just hits too close to home, just dear people that have struggled with this, what the heck is this necessary, this picture? And, and yet you see what God is doing here. He's just giving you this nightmarish horror that you have to grapple with 
to help us to feel, not just understand, but to feel in our gut what the sin of racism actually is. I mean, it's sick and it's terrible and it's nightmarish. It really is, if we can put it in today's term, spiritual Ebola. Turning your insides into mush. And if you could get that, dear friends, would we not be more zealous to identify it in our hearts when it lurks within? To call it what it is instead of defending ourselves against it or explaining it away. And to repent. And to say, God, I need your mercy. Because I'm violating this dear person or group of people. I'm violating you. I'm violating myself. Racism is a disease of the soul and no over-the-counter fixes can heal it. Is there anything that can? The good news is the answer is, of course, yes. Thirdly, the healing of racism. How do you get healing? Do you want healing? How do you get it? Where can we find it? You find it in the mediator, of course. The great go-between between God and man. You see God's words to Miriam and Aram in verses 6 through 8, where he describes there that there are ordinary prophets, including yourself, Miriam and Aaron. I reveal myself to them in visions. I speak to them in dreams. But Moses is special. Moses is unique. He is faithful in all my house. That's the language of an esteemed chief servant. Moses has experienced more intimacy, more access to God than any other human being. I talk to him clearly, face to face. He sees the form of the Lord. He is the unique mediator between God and man. And Aaron finally comes to term with that. Verse 11, where else can he go now on Miriam's behalf? He cries out, please, my Lord. I ask you not to hold against us the sin we have so foolishly committed. And Moses, in turn, in verse 13, with all the authority vested in him, cries out to the Lord, please, God, heal her. And he does. In due time, he does. How do you get healing? Cry out to the mediator. The one who has that unique access to God, who can bring to you the mercy of God. No, 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 not, not Moses, but the one to whom Moses points. The, the greater than Moses, the true Moses you see in a, a couple of chapters and pages in your Bible forward in Deuteronomy 18. We hear this incredible promise that God gives to the people of God that one day, someday, he will raise up for them a prophet like Moses among them. That one day there would be one who functioned like Moses, but yet greater than Moses, better than Moses, the ultimate Moses. His name, dear friends, was Jesus Christ. 
the mediator between God and man. See, Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant. Hebrews 3 tells us Jesus is faithful over God's house as a son. Moses spoke to God face to face. 2 Corinthians 4 reminds us that Jesus was the face of God. We have in him the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Moses sees the form of the Lord Jesus, we're told in Colossians 1 and 2 Corinthians 4, Philippians 2, Hebrews 1. Jesus was the form of the Lord. He is the image of the invisible God. And Jesus approaches racist-hearted, bigoted, prejudicial, excluding people like you and me And cries out, not as a wish, but as an effectual prayer. Please, God, heal her. Please, God, heal him. And God will do it. God will do it. Because he did. Jesus, who took his life and gave it up for our own. Jesus, who took our leprosy upon himself, our defilement, our decay, and let his own soul rot in hell on the cross, that you and I might be forgiven and freed from all that we actually deserve before the justice of God. Jesus, who died to forgive your sin, do you hear it, friends? Racism is not an unforgivable sin. Which is how our society more and more seems to be treating this terrible ill. Terrible, yes. Ugly, yes. But not unforgivable. And then what you have in him is a Savior who gives you honor. Who takes one who tried to exclude and yet then he now includes you and brings you into his inmost place. Seats you at his right hand and esteems you with his glory so you don't have to rob other people of their glory in order to feel important. Where you don't have to demote to promote because you've been saved by one who was promoted but demoted himself that you through him might be promoted. Do you hear the gospel? That in fact, now that his spirit lives in you, he gives you grace to love just as he has loved you. And so you see one who was able to move across worlds, one who left the comforts of heaven, as it were, and entered into the skin of our humanity who moved into our lives and saw the world through our eyes and walked this world in our feet, that we, like him, can begin to look at one another with incarnational love and say, dear friend, different from me, what is it like to be like you? Tell me more. I love you. Tell me more what the world looks like through your eyes. What Ferguson, Missouri looks like through your eyes. 
what Washington, D.C., what Columbia Heights and Mount Pleasant and Adams Morgan and our surrounding neighborhoods, the systems of this country, the institutions even of our own city, what does it feel like to be you? Tell me, because I'm listening. And I love you because I have been richly loved. You noticed lastly, verse 15, that Miriam was confined outside the camp for seven days. Again, God here giving her an object lesson, showing what it's like to be excluded before restoring her and being included. But you notice the people did not move on until she was back. They did not ditch her. They waited for her. This is the community restoring her because racial reconciliation and justice must involve the entire community. It must be a community enterprise, commitment, mutual promise to invest, to be involved in the process of reconciliation and pursuing justice. They waited for her. Will you wait for me? That I, even as your pastor in pursuing this vision, have a lot of room and a lot of ways in which I need to grow. Will you bring me along? Or you, we will wait for you and bring you along as well. And to walk with you and to cheer you on and to speak truth but to engage in honesty, to forgive and to repent and to reconcile all these things that are necessary to grow as a cross-cultural healing that's experiencing the healing grace of our mediator, Jesus. Don't you want that? Don't you want that? Jesus gives just that. Let's pray. And so we look to you, our mediator, our savior, where else can we go? Who else can we turn to? We love you because we've been so loved by you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand together. Let's sing.